Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest on episode 104 of the Mike's Search for Meaning podcast is Shaquilla Smith. Shaquilla is not very active on the interwebs. I'll link to a podcast episode that she was in on the Coaches Rising podcast, as well as her bio page on the Fetzer Institute website. And while Shaquilla is not here in this episode as a representative of Fetzer, Fetzer's mission statement is helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. And in a lot of ways, that's some of the territory that we cover in the episode. And that seems to be an embodiment of what Shaquilla stands for. But before we get there, every episode, I raise awareness for an organization of my guest choice. And Shaquilla has selected the organization Faith Matters Network. I will link to Faith Matters Network in the show notes. And please join me in donating to an incredible cause. This conversation is a wide ranging one. I think a couple of the highlights, or I'll I'll bullet point some of the main takeaways that I have from this episode. Shaquilla has been confronted with her own mortality in ways that I haven't, and probably many of you have not. And so while it's not an experience that I would ever wish upon someone, a lot of times when I hear people who have confronted their death, their mortality, on the other side of that, if they live there's a newfound appreciation for life. And there's lessons that we can all take if we aren't so avoidant, like we are as a culture, we're very avoidant of death. If we can confront our death and like the Stoics, almost meditate on our death on a regular basis, it actually helps us live more fully. Another component of this conversation that I love, and and this can really be broken into many subparts, is the way that Shaquilla breaks everything down into spiritual practices, joy as a spiritual practice, relationship as a spiritual practice. And the undertone of all of these different topics is there's a mechanical way of living life and we're, we're given a prescriptive, you know, do a job well, be a good partner, be a good parent, right? There's all these different rules that we internalize about what it means to, to live a good life, but A lot of people in this work, once we develop a spiritual orientation, it's because there's just so much more to life than the mechanics of it. And if we can get in touch with the eros and the beauty of all these different components of our life, then we can live more fully. So as I start connecting all these dots, I think living more fully is the the theme of this entire episode. And I will let Shaquilla take it from here. So with all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath and enjoy this conversation with Shaquilla Smith. All right, Shaquilla, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. So this is, I think, my favorite way to start this show. And, and one of my favorite things about the, the type, the caliber of people, the type of people that are attracted to this show, this depth, this search for meaning, is that 
a lot of times I have just such sincere check-ins. Like I, I was saying to you, when I arrived at, at 10 a.m., it's now 10.25. So we've had 25 minutes of really arriving together that, and I didn't actually say this to you before, but I was listening to the Coach's Rising appearance that you did with Valerie and, and Dana. And I just noticed this. I was I was stuck in like trying to get every detail right so that I was super prepared. And, and there's that's a part of me that wants to be really impressive for my guests. And I'm, I'm constantly grappling with this, like, do I come prepared? Do I come present? If someone asks me how I'm doing, do I share how I really feel? And I was sharing with you, like, you asked me how parenting is going. And, and that's a big question these days for me. And I, in a moment of frustration the other night, I felt a lot of anger in me. And anger is something that I, I don't, I historically haven't really handled well. And I've internalized that anger is bad. And my right peck over here, if you're if you're watching on YouTube, my right peck is really sore because I had so much energy in me. I didn't know what to do with it. It started just banging against my chest and it's still sore right now. And being able to share that with you was just that there's something really tender and beautiful about the fact that you were able to hold that this thing that, that I would probably be ashamed of saying to someone else, you're able to meet me there. And you and you're bringing this. You, you said tenderness into this conversation as well, and yeah. so I'm wondering if you would would like to check in with what's alive for you. Yeah, thank you. I mean, first, just again, thank you for um, sharing that. And you know, these what sometimes we call these real talk moments <laughs> or whatever mm -hmm. that people usually show their ambassadors, right? Like the perfect, but it's fine. Everything is great. Um, which <laughs> is great too. You know, you also talked about the joy and beauty of parenthood and, you know, a real moment. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I feel like, and I think that showed up because I'm feeling sort of like tender and in I can, I love hyperbole sometimes. So I'll just be hyperbolic for a moment, but this is not quite it. But I, I was, I'm having kind of like an existential crisis, if you will, or some sort of maybe some tender moment around my whole process of being and becoming, which is a thing that I think about a lot these days. And so I think the last couple of weeks have been particularly tender for me as well. And then yesterday I sort of slipped into a kind of a melancholy, I think, that I couldn't mm -hmm. really describe. I didn't have words for it, but I know that it's related to this kind of like existential angst that I'm in right now, just around who I am in the world, what's calling me now in this moment the work that I'm doing in the world, all of those things. So, so yeah, and kind of, you know, I was telling you that I was, um, I kind of chuckled at the title of your show when I was opening up the calendar invite, because it is sort of like a crisis of meaning too, which I think we move in and out of all the time, you know, like, I don't, I don't think it's like, I have meaning the end, you know, like we're constantly recreating or trying to um, find meaning, I think, in mm. different moments. So, so yeah, that's what I, yes, yeah, so I entered this conversation a little tender, 
not feeling very sure of myself, mm-hmm. you know, like feeling like I don't know anything, which is, I think that that would be an interesting thing to talk about because that is also part of this angst that I've been experiencing recently around like what it means to know and, mm. and how we take action based on our knowing, especially when you don't know things. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's sort of where I am right now. That sounds like a beautiful exploration. I'll, I'll say your existential angst, your melancholy, your showing up not knowing it's all welcome here it's so welcome here it's it's a beautiful gift to me and to anyone who's listening because i this is the permission slip that i i talk about this isn't the first time that i've spoken about it on this show or otherwise i i speak about it a lot i look at this type of check-in as a permission slip that says all of you the listener is welcome here too the yeah. parts that aren't polished and that don't know and are unsure of our existence, right? The existential angst is I, my existence is, feels at risk or, or uncertain right now. And yeah, that's, that's definitely one of the intentions of the show is that meaning, life, whatever we're searching for, it's, it's a consistent journey. It's not something that we find and, which <laughs> there are parts of me that still grapple with that, right? Oh, I found meaning and I found my purpose and I'm living that. And that is <laughs> my life has ascended to this new thing. So yeah, I, I guess I, I would love to start by exploring what that, how, how you grapple with existential, I pronounce it angst. I, I actually, I honor, it's like a tomato, tomato thing. <laughs> angst, <sweet>. angst. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to, I want to just zoom in a little bit on, on how that's showing up for you. And I think maybe to give more color to where this conversation might go, spirituality seems to underlie a lot of the things that we might speak about. And spirituality is a word that I have found elusive, hard to define. People have this really strong allergic reaction to myself, formerly included, like, highly analytical left brain. I actually know that about you too, that you're, you're a planner and, and that you like to have your, I, I imagine you like to have your ducks in a row and you like to think things through. And so that I imagine that in some way contributes to moments like this where the, the, the ground might not feel like it's underneath you. Mm-hmm. So I, I, there isn't as much a question. I guess it's just an invitation to can we can we explore this a little bit more deeply? Yeah, yeah, that's great. And I mean, it's definitely and so I'm externally processing right now because some of it, you know, like I was saying, I have it. Some of it is formless. Although I have been thinking about this for the past couple of weeks in particular, right? Like this particular mm. moment. Yeah, and I think I'm trying to think of what's the best way into the conversation in some ways. And I think some of it started with, I will, maybe maybe we'll bring it more concretely, I guess. I think some of it started this recent bout, like a week ago, I was convening 
a group of spiritual practitioners and leaders um, who are doing amazing work in the world at all of these different intersections. And we're in a longer term cohort around love, racial justice, and spiritual transformation. Mm. So thinking about where what the intersection is of all of those things, as you can imagine, is, you know, it's a really deep inquiry to be in. So so the invitation for them was to be in a two-year praxis or action and reflection cycle and sense-making cycle around around how these things relate and how they help us create the world that we want to live in together. And we came together and it was such a deep space. And there was some difficulty that, or difficulty is a judgment, but, you know, some difficulty that showed up in the space around our relating and around what kind of group we're going to be. Because this, this is, a, they're all BIPOC leaders and from, you know, different racial groups and different spiritual traditions and paths as well. So it's an interfaith space. Mm. And I bring that up just to say that, you know, it's conflict is going to be inevitable in that kind of a space, right? When you have people with different perspectives and different backgrounds. So anyway, we got into us and I was one of the co-facilitators with a group of other people, a, a tough conversation where, I, where we found that the, those of us facilitating, we didn't know where to go with it or how mm. to intervene or what to do. And it was such an interesting moment where I was like, it was like I was just sitting there watching all of this stuff happening. And in some ways it was not anything to do. It was fine. Like the group was having its process. Right. And they're all, very practiced spiritual practitioners and leaders. And, you know, and so we just sort of watched things play out the way that they needed to play out. But then it was like all of these tensions arose in the conversation, like how much do you allow open space for things to happen? How much do you intervene and 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 step in? And then I also, one of my things, I'll share this, is I can be very over-responsible sometimes. You know, mm. I'm a firstborn child, and and that's something that I have to pay attention to in my work, right? Like this, this taking on of responsibility for what's happening and for things going well and being right and people being protected and all this stuff. But then like we're we're but then I also knew that there is something for me to do potentially, right? Like what's the timely action? So those were tensions that were coming up among the other tensions that were in the group. But then um after that experience, we did find a way through. Not that night that we had that conversation, but the next day, and the facilitation team had to sort of just debrief and grapple with like what was happening or what had happened in that moment. And it was really sort of this interesting moment to think about. Cause the other thing I guess I should say is context is that we were inviting and we had what we called sort of a, a liberatory agenda where we were asking the group to also decide how they wanted the time to go, right? So mm. 
we're ceding power or authority in certain ways and um, and was that the right thing to do? So anyway, it brought up all of these questions about just how, what is needed right now for humans in our current moment to co-create, a, you know, a just and beautiful world together across difference, across different needs and preferences, across all of these things. And I really had a moment where I didn't, like, I actually didn't think I was capable of holding space for all of this. And I think other members of the team felt that way too. You know, where this moment of feeling inadequate or not mm. up for, for, for the demands of what, what was required. And so it just, it sent me into this, this spinning around just how, yeah, how we how we're working and co-creating together. And the truth is, is that we aren't adequate. Like the truth is, is that I'm completely adequate because we did all get through it, not with one person, right? That's the other thing. Like it took multiple ones of us to show up and be able to to discern what the next step was. And we also are inadequate. So I think mm-hmm. that's how I slipped into this space of of yeah, we actually don't know how to create the world that we're longing mm. for. And I think, I think, I don't know, somehow I think that's okay. I think there's some kind of invitation in the admission that we actually don't know and that we're both adequate and inadequate for that. So I'm kind of like sitting with what that means for me to be a human in that space and also somebody who is in a a senior leadership position too, where people expect you to know things Mm -hmm. and to like hold containers in certain ways. Mm -hmm. This Shaquille evokes a lot for me. I think one one of the things that it evokes for, for certain, and it's a big edge for me is the type of leadership that's being called for in today's world, which, which is the leadership of not knowing and embracing and accepting that that we do not know. And, and how do we model that in a way that is paradoxically like in command, right? Like I'm in command of my not knowing. I can model the fact that I'm inadequate and don't know in a way that doesn't actually lose the ability to hold this group together in some way. And, and it's a, it's a really dynamic approach that is required of leaders and, and the old model of, I have all of the answers and I will never show any chink in the armor or any vulnerability. It doesn't, it doesn't work, yeah. but in some ways for our mind, it's much easier to, to cling on to that. So uh, what I'm hearing from you is just it's there's so much to to hold there of can I can I hold a container for people of different faiths, different religions, different ethnicities, different spiritual practices, different everything and do it in a way that honors and embraces everyone and also says I don't have the answer, but but we we're going to co-create all this thing together. Yeah. I wonder I wonder what you're a practical person and someone who can hold 
all of these really big tensions that that might seem uh, hard to hard to follow or or esoteric. I I imagine I feel like we're doing a pretty good job of actually explaining what this is like. So I'm just I'm wondering what the practice is for you to remain either come back to center or remain at center when when all of this is happening. Like what what is your anchor for? I'm okay. For me, like a, a hand on my heart. I, I've been doing this for a little bit in this conversation and otherwise, like like hand on my heart, feet on the ground. Like, how do you remain grounded and centered when it feels like everything is being unearthed and you there's existential angst and all the things that we've been talking about? Yeah, that's so, so funny that you asked that <laughs> because that was one of the ways forward for that group. So the next day we came back and invited them into a sharing around, okay, so things almost went off the rails a little bit, right? (laughs) Before, and what were the spiritual practices that you used in that moment or Mm -hmm. after that moment to care for yourself or to be in that moment? So it was funny and, and the responses were beautiful, and so I have actually reflected on this. And one of the things that that I did, and I've realized that I do more, more now too, is to sort of this practice of, of allowing. Sometimes, actually, a couple of years ago, I was talking about it as like my method of leadership was like being like water. Mm. And it was... Basically, like, I don't have to defend or protect anything. Like, everything that is happening is okay. Like, And so there was a moment, again, because my tendency was to rush in and be like, do something, make an intervention, like, you know, say something, protect, you know, which mm-hmm. leaders often, and not that in this context, but just like generally since reflecting on what you offered, leaders are often expected to protect, right, people. There's their protection model there, um, protect people from discomfort, protect them from harm or protect them. Yeah, just protect. And that's, and that's not bad. I don't, I'm not judging that because there is a, a moment for protection and I mean, the truth is, is that nobody can protect anybody. Like we really mm-hmm. can barely protect ourselves from life, you know, or from discomfort yeah. or any of that or negative consequences or whatever, you know, whatever that is. So anyway, like there was really like allowing. So that was a practice. And I had to like come back to because I could feel my heart kind of like going up. And then I was doing this story around like the group was getting away or I'm not, again, I'm not facilitating properly or I'm not protecting, you know, whatever these storylines are. And so it was like, no, this is okay. Like, like mm-hmm. whatever is happening right now is okay. Um, fundamentally. And it was okay, actually. And then the other thing was to like, to practice deep awareness, I think too, like paying attention to myself and what was going on in my body. Like you talked mm. about this sort of somatic practice of just like landing. And I think the other practice that that came up for me, which surprised me 
in the um, story, but I've realized that I've integrated it so deeply is so I, I'm I am a Buddhist practitioner. Um, that's one of my traditions that I practice and it's not the only one, but it is a core one. And there's in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition that I practice in, there's this this practice called raising wind horse, which is it's basically like a practice of of kind of connecting into your your basic human dignity and and what they call unconditional confidence, which is not arrogance or ego. It's sort of like I am on the earth and because I exist and am on the earth, I belong. I have inherent worth. Like mm. there's nothing wrong with me as I am, right? Like, so that's what they mean by unconditional confidence. So it's this whole practice of, and it has like five steps. Like when you do it formally, it's like, you know, kind of bringing your energies together. But but I've practiced it so much. I I do it kind of like this. I do kind of like a five second wind horse, raising wind horse practice that I sometimes don't even realize that I do. So I was doing it in the shower the next day of like just kind of coming into my body and into myself. And I actually did it before I got on this call too, where you're like, you know, like firm back, soft heart, you know, and yeah. just gaining out like unconditional confidence and this sort of gathering the energies together. It's like a very crystallizing practice of coming back to oneself. Mm. And so I realized that I was doing that too, you know, but those were the main practices of just like allowing really being present with what was moving in me physically, like subtly and like in my mind, all of these things, which is really important too, because I guess that stops us from acting out of habitual patterns. That's the importance of paying attention because if I because otherwise I would have just stepped in there with my like over responsibility and my like need to protect or do something, do something. Yeah. <laughs> so that like being aware that oh, I'm like having a, a an experience right now you know, where I'm feeling inadequate or I'm feeling something happening was really important. And then that wind horse, like gathering myself together. So those those were the practices that I think um, came to me in that moment and, after, and just after. Mm -hmm. So a reflection and then the, I have a few different questions, but we'll, we'll start with, we'll, we'll see where I end up getting to. The reflection, what, what I'm noticing is so important about this, and I am a firstborn child as well, so I can relate to this experience of wanting to be hyper-responsible for everything and and kind of like managing the comfort of everyone else in the room. And step. And one way to do that is to step in and and take control so that other people don't feel discomfort. And one of the things that you were sharing there is that if if the pattern is never interrupted, if we just you if we react and default to we're hyper responsible and we step in there's that is one strategy that can be effective but there's so many other options that are also effective that we will never have access to and it speaks to the practicality of having these types of practices that if we can slow down enough to be with the experience as it is and not just default to the pattern that has always been there 
we become much more dynamic. This is a really essential quality in leadership. And it's a huge edge for me because that is, I conflict historically has been really hard for me and allowing other people to feel what they are feeling has been hard for me, right? Like, no, I don't want you, you feeling that makes me uncomfortable and that, that ain't okay over here, right? <laughs> yes. And it blocks off a lot of information that's in the room, right? So it's like becoming more attuned. We're almost becoming more attuned instruments to gathering all of the wisdom and information in the room. And so there's actually another thing that I, I wanted to add in here because you, you mentioned that uh, something along the lines of leadership being like water or you being like water in these moments. It reminds me of the Tao Te Ching. I don't know if you have read the Tao Te Ching. Mm-hmm. And yeah. It, it's full of these different, do you, are there any passages that you, you, you strike me as someone who would maybe know a passage or two from the Tao Te Ching. I, I haven't read it in a while, but. Yeah, me either. I mean, I am, I have copies of it actually, multiple copies, but I'm not, it's not a huge part of my practice. So I couldn't, mm. you know. It's got a bunch of lines in it. Like he who does not speak has the loudest voice in the room, right? Yeah. So thing, things like that. So. Yeah. I think that that's, it's a really interesting book. I'm going to make sure I write that in the show notes, the Tao Te Ching. I think Stephen Mitchell's version is the, the most popular one. It's the one that I have a copy of mm-hmm. on, uh, on my nightstand somewhere. <laughs> it's buried, but it's in there. It's in there somewhere. And Shaquille, the question that I wanted to get around to is there's something about well, actually, the, uh, before we go there, because I have so much bubbling in me, when when you when you spoke about the raising wind horse practice, I want to give listeners right now the you said you're able to do the five steps really quickly. Yeah. What are the five steps? They let me see if I can remember. It's funny because then we ended up getting a a teaching on it after that because we had somebody in the space who was an acharya in that tradition, which is a senior teacher. And I'm going, I'm going to mess it up, but it's basically like you are sitting and being aware of, you know, the, the earth beneath you and the, the sky above you kind of coming in to being. And then this practice of like coming into the heart center and sort of noticing almost like your ancestors or or everything that has your back kind mm. of and then like opening up the the front of the body and then I'm gonna I'm gonna mess it up because I, I always because I just really have our you know brought it in but it's kind of like strong back soft heart again and opening and then just coming into awareness of of like the space and and the open heart and then radiating out Mm. from this, like, like feeling into the heart space and really just radiating out this unconditional confidence. Mm. And then that's it. Dropping it. Right. So. Mm hmm. yeah it's really powerful and yeah. I, I especially love there's like connection to the ground connection yep. to the sky dropping in to feel what's what's here for you 
allowing yourself to be supported. Like when you call in ancestors, that's something that I've had a hard time with. Like calling in ancestors feels a, a little, I want it to work for me so badly, but when I do it, it's, I could feel that I'm efforting to it in a little, a little bit. But if I can just feel like open heart, strong back, like you were saying. Yep. And even just putting your body in that shape. Yep. A lot of times when we're in, in a defaulted pattern, we we're, we don't even notice, but our body's in a shape that that doesn't allow for us to be, I don't know, in our powers, one way to describe it, or connected yeah. to ourself, right? That's right. That's right. So. Actually, can I say something? Yeah. About, yeah, I've, I'm really resonating with you talking about not connecting to the ancestors. And it's funny because as I was thinking about this call, I had said that I wanted to start off kind of like calling in the people like from my traditions and lineages. And I also struggle a lot with that too. Like it didn't feel, because we don't really have, I think one of the, this is sort of, I don't not a critique, but it's one of the limitations I think of modern American culture these days or Western culture is that we are disconnected from our lineages, mm -hmm. whatever they are, right? Like a scene is, yeah, there's something that we don't like about, you know, being connected to our lineages. And I have that too. Like I have, I um, struggle with my family or have struggled with my family lineage because there's some difficult things in it, right? Or the ways that like families have been hard for people, and so I think there's been just kind of like this rejection of that in some ways, like we don't know what to do with it. And I think we've been cut off, right? When people came here to the, the so-called new world, right? I think for at least like Black people here, there was a literal disconnect, a forced disconnection from the lineage. And I think it was the case for not, I think it has been the case for white people too, that we never talk about that people have been cut off from those lineages because because you had to become American, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, unless you're like ethnic, quote unquote, which wasn't good to be ethnic at a certain point in this country, right? Like people had to sort of give those up. And so a lot of people don't feel a connection to their lineage. And so I actually have a lot of friends and, and it's been really interesting. A lot of white friends as part of their racial justice work who started doing a lot of lineage work with ancestry as a way to like, you know, as part of their work around that, which is interesting. That's a whole other conversation. But, but I wanted to say, I, I also have had a lot of difficulty with family lineage stuff. And so the ancestor work was hard. But what clicked for me was when um, the first way that I started to do it was pick at least one known ancestor who I had a relationship with, a, a healthy or intact relationship with, which is my maternal grandmother. And so I've thought, I think a lot about her life and what she would want for me and and how um, how my current life and what I'm trying to live as, you know, right now is sort of a way of like living the life that maybe she 
would have wanted to live, but wasn't able to live because I have different opportunities and just, you know, by virtue of being a, you know, a woman in the 21st century, um, I have different options than she did. But then the other way into lineage for me too is not even connected to my family. So I think about who are my intellectual ancestors, mm-hmm. like Audre Lorde, um, Noun Bell Hooks, James Baldwin, um, Octavia Butler, uh, people who have formed me, like their right, their thinking and their living has really been seminal in my own formation as a Black woman in terms of my leadership and the practices that I do as well, too. And then spiritual lineages that I have, too, like Trogum Trumpa Rinpoche and and some of the other people. And then, and then I've started bringing in other living people from my, my disciplinary lineages. Like I often will invoke Bill Torbert, Bob Keegan, Aliki Nicolaides, you know, from the people who whose work has really informed the way that I do my work now. Like I'll name those people. And like when I'm going into a tough situation, like something that I know where I might not have full capacity on my own, mm-hmm. I'll invoke those people and just ask them to like be with me in those moments, right? Mm-hmm. And so that has been a way in for me to basically just recognize that I don't do this work on my own and I can't do this work on my own and I don't want to do this work on my own and that there are a lot of people that have people and ideas and thoughts and experiences that have really informed all of you know my being and becoming. So that's yeah. that's been my way into being able to connect with ancestors, not as this kind of like, you know, oh, we're going to like pour wine and make altars for that, which you can do that, right? Like I might be able to do some of that stuff, but only because I went into it through this other way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad that you interjected with that. And you, you started to, you read my mind basically, because one of the things that was clicking for me as you were describing calling on your ancestors is that even if someone thinks it's the most esoteric woo-woo nonsense, that calling on an inner council, if you will, just people that, if, you know, if you could fill a room with five to 10 people who would support you in making the best possible choices or being your best self or, you know, whatever language resonates for you, that that's something that I know a lot of people do. Even the most westernized, stuck in your head people will call on their inner council or like the most basic thing that a lot of people will say is what would Jesus do is a really popular one or what would X person do, right? Like whoever those people are in your life, being able to call on that, it can help to overcome as you're pointing to there's, there's several Western limitations. One is this hyper individuality that I'm stuck in a lot. And that's actually, that's another, if we deepen the look into being hyper responsible and trying to control for every, you know, we don't want anyone to be uncomfortable. It's a little arrogant actually to think that I could be the person alone without any help from any other person could be responsible for all of that. Right. But 
that it is very Western. Yeah. And I think another thing that uh, I'm in touch with now is that we're very much a forward-thinking, what's-next type of culture. And even to take a moment, even if you don't connect with your ancestry, just to take a moment to reflect back on on your, uh, how am I here? Yep. Right? Like, who contributes to Michael and Shaquilla being here in this moment right now? That's right. That's a beautiful practice to be in. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I think, too, I love that you're that we're playing with, like, how to make these things that seem esoteric really relevant and real mm-hmm. for practitioners in the 21st century, which is a lot of stuff that I do. And I mean, there's a lot of research on it's not my area, but I came across some of it in my um, doctoral training, research on expertise, right? Or or people who are like when they look at elite athletes or or people who are really skilled at something like business people or whatever, and they interview them and talk about them, you know, and they talk about these flow states or how people perform. And a lot of it is, I remember we had a lecture about this and the guy was saying they're like people who are masters at what they do are notoriously the worst people to like teach or get inform or to, to teach this stuff or get information from because they, it's like in their bodies, right? Like it's so tacit. They don't even know all of the little steps that they do all the time. It's like when you asked me to go through the five steps, steps <laughs> by any means, but right. I've integrated it into my practice so that like coming back down unless I was like, okay, I'm going to teach this. So let me like, remember the formal steps. You kind of don't know. And I bring that up to just say that we do a lot of these things when when we're like in our flow state or when we're like really in our peak performance or at our best that we don't realize that we do, right? Like these mental states like athletes or even I've heard Jim Carrey talk about his whole visual like visualization practice of like manifesting things or when it's like it's really fascinating so it's not actually woo woo like people who are really Mm -hmm. successful and effective and I remember I got a chance I was being kind of like mentored by this this vice president of finance at the university that I'd worked at like this was some years ago you know and he was like this middle-aged white man who I adored him because I felt very like connected to him and his process. And he would just share these things with me just about how he did his his work that would just blow me away. And one, it was just such a gift for him to like share that vulnerably with me. And like, I remember one of the things that he shared with me that he does is like when he's going to go into a difficult meeting, which, you know, at that level at the university, he had a lot of them. He would like go look in the mirror and kind of like gather himself in these different ways and sort of like he had like this whole these practices that he was using to it kind of was like a wind horse practice in some ways. Right. He wouldn't call it that, but he was like getting himself to get like he didn't just go into like tough meetings and then Mm -hmm. be able without this brilliance or whatever. And I think there's more of that than what we realize. And probably if people thought about 
yeah, how do I come through these situations to be able to be effective, right? If we want to use those words like effective or a skilled leader, I think there's more of these kinds of things that we're that that people do to than what we think too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with, I'm loving the way that we're dancing in this subject matter, but if you, I don't know if you're familiar with power posing and that's something oh, yeah. that yes. as, as a public speaking instructor, this is something Yeah, I do some public speaking coaching because it's such a common fear. And, and a lot of us are called at some point in our life to and make a speech or start leading meetings or run teams and run, facilitate large groups and yeah, with public speaking, a lot of us, we do, we go into the room and just think that things should just click into gear. And what you were talking about with, with athletes to a certain extent, like we, if it's when, when it's for some reason we have a block around, you know, I, if I just show up to a meeting, I'm just talking. I, I don't need to get my body aligned or do something to, to get myself there. But if I'm doing a workout, I think a lot of us have warm up routines or, certain ways that we we prime ourselves to show up. That's and I was great. thinking the power posing, if you're not familiar with it, and I'll, I'll link to this in the show notes as well. It's a lot of times when a runner is done with a race, if they're the winner, they put they put their arms up in the air like this in celebration. There's something about putting your body again, to use this phrase, like putting your body in that shape. Yeah, for me, it, it brings out power and joy. Yeah, it really does. And it doesn't have to be that for every single person, but getting to know like what shape to put your body in that allows you to show up the way that you want to show up is a beautiful thing. I'm I'm also reminded by, I don't know if you're familiar with the show Ted Lasso. Yeah. Oh, yes. (laughs) It's one one of my, it's, it might be my favorite show in the last, I don't know, five to 10 years. And so good, isn't it? It's it's just such a good show. And it's really a show about leadership in in my opinion. Yeah. And Rebecca, who runs the the soccer club, you know where I'm going with this, right? It's like, she is, as a woman that is in a very male, old school, white male dominated industry, owner of a, a sports club, a, a soccer club, a football club, if you're from UK or the rest of the world. Before a big meeting, she, she would put her arms up like, she looks in the mirror, she says, and she goes like. Yeah, right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, uh, it doesn't have to be goofy, but like, I... I resonated a lot with that. I really did. Like that's a that's such a cool way to show your body. This is the thing we're about to get into. Yeah, it, ma- it makes it so much easier. Yeah, she's marshalling her energy, and I'm you as you know, I'm an energy practitioner. That's right. And so she is kind of like getting her energy, like setting her energy for the work that she's about to do. And if you remember, I don't remember his name. Was it Neil? The other. The other guy that ended up, I don't want to give it away for anybody who plans on watching it, but the assistant that ended up rising up to become Ted Lasso's mentee, you know what I'm, I'm yeah, talking about. Yeah, the reason, uh, well, I knew his name already, but it happens to be my son's name as well. His name is Nathan. Oh, that's right, Nathan. <laughs> okay. yes, that's right. Okay, yes. Well, you remember he would do a similar thing, but his was kind of like nasty because- Spit on had- himself. Yeah, he had like an inferiority complex, right? So to get himself to be like not a doormat for people, you know, he would do this whole like 
you know, like getting into this really aggressive stance, which actually carried him into some of the actions that he would then take later. So, yeah, I don't, it's not, it really is not, it's not woo-woo at all. No. <laughs> it's highly, highly practical. And yeah. even even if your routine is just to take a couple of breaths and put your hand over your heart, whatever the thing, it does signal something to our body that we're we're about to step into something. And I have rituals before I I record this show as well because I think it's it's important. Like it, to some extent, I aspire not to be performing, but I am. I'm, I'm stepping into some sort of arena that it's, it's a field that is more than just me and you, right? There's going to be right. other people who listen to this conversation. That's right. Anyway, this is, yeah, this is so neat that we're, we're uncovering all these different things. I want to go back actually a little bit right now mm-hmm. and just define spirituality and, and to put it in, in what spirituality means to you. Because I, I alluded to this a little bit earlier that it's a word that a lot of people misunderstand, I think. Yeah myself yeah. included. And, and I think spirituality is a highly individual ex- experience. Yeah. So I'm just wondering how you look at spirituality and the way that you kind of, it seems like a through line in, in every domain of your life. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, funny too. Cause so we, we did this American spirituality study. We be in Fetzer Institute, which is where I work, but, and and it is such a complex thing. And it's true. People do get activated by that, that language. And then it's like, is spirituality different than religion? And is it, you know, like, what are all these things? And I think for me, the simplest way that I think about it is spirituality is sort of the the process of being and becoming and unfolding that mm. we're in that that goes beyond the material you know or yeah or or our physical experience you I know see. that includes the subtle the ephemeral the the unseen parts of our our being and becoming mm-hmm. so that's my my basic you know, the way that my basic understanding of it, the way that we make meaning and and make sense of what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. And as a practice, there's there's a lot of different ways that you say on ramps into practices that incorporate spirituality. Like we have joy teed up for this conversation. There's joy as a spiritual practice, inquiry as a spiritual practice. This kind of just relationship. Yeah. That's my most recent form of practice, actually. Yeah. So I would love to get into all the different things that we had teed up in, in terms of yep. what are, what do all these practices look like? Why, why do they feel important to bring into this conversation today? And if, yeah. if relationships most alive for you right now, then that would be a great place to start. And maybe something I'll throw in here because... I was really touched by this in your Coaches Rising conversation with Dana, Valerie, and Joel. Is the way that you talked about Eros in friendship. Yeah. I imagine that might be part of the, and relationship. And I imagine that might be part of the practice. So I know that's a lot 
that I that I'm throwing at you. But if you could just talk about what relationship means to you, how you look at it as a spiritual practice, how Eros plays into that, that would be, I think, a beautiful gift for me and for the listeners. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think um I think the way that I started framing this has been something that's been important to me for a while. This notion of relationship as well, the way I used to frame it is that relationships as spaces for growth and development and transformation. And now the way that I talk about it is relationships and community as being like part of a spiritual practice because I'm embedded for a while I have been. I've been embedded in communities and I do a lot of community building work, I guess, if you will. And so I'm very much aware of all of the demands and invitations of that. But but I think I started off with this notion that relationships were more than just things to make us happy, right? Like that's mm. what people, or, or ways to get our needs met. That's the way that people <laughs> think about it, basically. Like sometimes a little bit transactionally, right? Like we yeah. have relationships because... They help, which it is true, right? Like humans have been in relationships and family structures and communities since the beginning of time. And it is a, a survival necessity as well, right? Like we survive in community and especially in earlier days, like you literally would not survive unless you were in community because just like the the harsh realities of of living in pre-industrial times, if you will, you know, when you yeah. had to build fires and, you know, and, and fend off the elements in particular ways and carry water. And there's also the emotional part of survival, like, which I'm sure you're even more connected to having baby Nathan now that like, we need, you know, he needs you for his literal survival, but also emotional survival too, right? Like that that need to connect is so innate in humans because we are pack animals. But so beyond that, from but I don't I actually don't think about relationships like that. I think of them as part of our like I don't think that you can grow and develop on your own, but so far, right? Like we need each other because we provide mirrors for each other. And there are things that come up for us in relationship, ways that we see ourselves and get feedback about ourselves or who we are and who we're becoming that only happen in relationship. Mm. And some of this work for me was informed by Harville Hendrix's work with the Imago therapy where he just talks about how in intimate partnerships in particular people un unconsciously choose folks who kind of mirror our primary caregivers in some ways and that like the things that that the relationship is there to help you heal some of that this is sort of like a gross yeah. like overestimation of this but I was so intrigued by that, actually, right? And so he talks about these snags that we get in in relationships as being really meant for our own um, unfolding if we could take them as such, right? But when people think yeah. relationships are just about being happy or just about 
you know, do I like you or do you meet the needs that I have or what, you know, like these sort of things. And you, then the minute somebody doesn't do that, then you kind of discard the relationship or think it's not worthwhile anymore. And he sort of, I mean, I have critiques about theory too, which I don't need to get into, but just like his invitation is that there's something more to be paying attention to and how can relationships be spaces for growth and healing. And then he even offers different practices and ways that you can engage some of the like stuff that gets stirred up in the relationship. And so anyway, I started off years ago being very intrigued by that whole notion. And it felt true to me as well, because it like, I think I always from, you know, I always had this innate spirituality as a child and I, I had come up with this idea that like the people, but I'm sure it came from other things, but it made sense to me that that the people who I was in relationship with, like my mom or my friends or parents, that that those things, those my life circumstances and relationships were part of this like deeper spiritual work and 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 process that I was in. And so I think it's just now that I'm older and in in holding these views about relationships that I can see how we do come together with each other for our own unfolding, right? And some of it is not, and it doesn't mean that it's not this fun, beautiful process all the time either, <laughs> right? So it doesn't mean that because I think people have, or at least I know I would have this view that if that's what it was, that it means that, oh, we feel aligned and, you know, and all this other stuff. But sometimes it's in the misalignment, too, that I actually feel like I do my deepest work in the relationships that actually are not aligned in some mm-hmm. ways, you know, because I've learned things about myself that surprise me or that that I'm not expecting um, to learn. And so, so in that way... I think if we can, and I just got married too, I should say this as well. So I'm really in in this deep inquiry around what what it means to be married and what this whole, I've been calling it this mystery of communion is that we enter into with another person to witness and be witnessed by that person. And then, and then with certain people that you come together with, and I would be very concrete so that not to keep it in the esoteric frame too. Sure. Like both my husband and I, we both have particular history, family histories, right? Like family has been like a source of, of contention or thing, you know, this whole notion of what does it mean to be a family, right? Like that's mm-hmm. been a deeper inquiry, I think, for both of us and things that we've had to interrogate for different reasons. And so I was like, oh, isn't this fascinating? Like both of us have this sort of longing for family, but also like some kind of like suspicion around this notion of family too. And and so what does it mean for us to be co-creating a family together out of those like shared histories, right? And how do we bring in, again, here the ancestors, bring in all of our family histories, our lineages. So 
you know, just to tie it back to our other conversation, here we go. Like you can't actually get rid of your lineage, even if you don't want to recognize it or, mm-hmm. or you don't like it, right? Because we bring all of those histories with us, right? Like the ways that our parents were in family, which is informed by their parents' way in family. You know, it's like, so the lineages are actually not as distal as we think they are. So we talk a lot about that and how, yeah, it really is an interesting conversation to be in. And I think that's deeply spiritual, right? To know that like I'm with this person in this current iteration of my own being and becoming and his as well. And we've made an intentional choice to collaborate labor together around that. And so, and the things that come up, right? Like the ways that, the ways that I have to like pay attention and the things that get stirred up in me, right? Like, cause I went through a whole phase of, um, I've been, single for a long time, like single in the sense of, because he and I have a long history that I won't get into, but like single in terms of like living on my own and all of that stuff for a while. And so I went through this whole phase of um, like a moment of loss and grieving around what it means to be a singular self and then not a singular self anymore. I'm still myself, but like now I'm partnering with this other person Right. And so this whole grappling with with just who I am in the world as as a person, but then a person who's now in a partnership, right? A life partnership with somebody. So again, I go into that level of detail because I think it's just another reminder that our lives actually have all of the like fodder and fuel for our own spiritual practice. And development, and it is, right? Because I have to use all those things that I talked about in that session in my relationship, right? Like mm-hmm. things come up, like even yesterday, he was noticing that I had slipped into that melancholy and, you know, was like, oh, what's going on with you? You know, and then sometimes when you get into those spaces, you can project them onto the other person, mm-hmm. which I wasn't, like, I didn't think it was anything to do with him. But again, there's these like moments that seem very mundane and kind of like domestic, but they really are like, if you can kind of raise your awareness up or like um, Aliki Nicolaides talks about incending, like go down a little bit, you can kind of see that there's this other invitation, I think, to doing, to yeah, there's a deeper spiritual invitation around that, that we're, that me and him are not just husband and wife, but we're actually partnering together on life and witnessing each other's and participating in, not just witnessing each other's being and becoming in this moment. Mm. So that's how, for me, I see it as a deeply spiritual practice, you know? Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing all of that. Congratulations on your marriage. Thank you. <laughs> may, may your husband meet all of your needs because that's what relationships are all about. I hope that he I hope that he fulfills all your needs and that you guys just have happiness and joy and nothing else. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> no, and I I have experienced relationships to be the same way. I think 
one of the byproducts of the spiritual path, if you will, or dedicate devoting yourself to inner work and devoting yourself to leadership as it's called for in today's world is that what I'm hearing is every bit of information that is stirred up in us becomes something that can be healed or related to in a way and that relationship and partnership not just partnership, but relationships are always, if we look at it as a spiritual practice, it's an invitation to connect to, whoa, what is this bringing up in me? Right. Yeah. And, and when we look at it, I don't know, there, there's some, there's a lot of common dynamics, but I was sharing with you that anger is something that I've had a hard time with before we hit record. And, and anger is still something that I have a really hard time with at times. And that is due to a lineage of not just with my parents, but their parents and their parents and their parents and the spiritual practice of being able to connect with my anger in a healthier way. It's, I've seen it be healed. I, I, this is my words, and I, I don't know if this will land for the listener, but when I make contact with an anger that lives in me and can meet it with a level of gentleness and, accept, and acceptance and allowance... I can feel it be healing in a nonlinear way generations back, like my dad and his dad, and also for Nathan and for and for his future. It almost collapses time in, yeah. in a way. And that's that's where it becomes non-material, esoteric, ephemeral, what you were describing. And it's, you know, as is the theme of this conversation, it's also highly practical because if I if I can't allow anger to be here for me, then I'm shutting myself off to a, a lot of information. Yeah, that's right. And and partnership and relationships are they're going to bring up our stuff. I don't I don't know why this is the the thing of the human experience, but yeah. I mean, I am married to someone who is in a lot of ways a carbon copy of <laughs> my mother, and so <laughs> yeah. And so like the things that are, that are provocative for me in my relationship, it's, well, what, it, a lot of times it's, what did I, what did I not get as a child or what, what was the need of mine and, and how is that affecting the way that I am relating currently yep. and how does this affect the way that I am being and becoming in the rest of my life, not just in my relationship here, but like in, in my entire life. And it's like you said, it's not. I've actually, I didn't find myself gravitating towards, yeah, it just sounds like it's really fun and amazing all the time. Like for me, it's, it's usually really hard yeah. and, and challenging and also beautiful. Yeah. But also really beautiful in, in its own right. So yeah. I, I love the way that you have described relationship. It's such a robust and dynamic way to look at the, the invitation that is how are we connecting to all the people around us? And what, what happens in us when, you know, if someone is a people pleaser, if I make up that they're a people pleaser and that's really annoying to me, yep. what is, what's that really about? Yep. That's right. Yeah. that Yeah. Or you find out things about yourself from other people mm. right, that, that you just wouldn't have. Yeah. That just don't surface when you're by yourself. Mm -hmm. Like they just don't, you know, which is why relationship and community brings out some of these different things. You know, like I have to share space now or share resources or 
or there's somebody who wants to know when I'm coming home in the evening, right? And so all of these things are new for me, right? So I can like take perspective on them now. And and so that then you have to grapple with selfishness or, you know, which is not bad or or the ways that, you know, control or the things that I want to do, things that I want to do, you know, or the way that I do things. And again, like I don't have to grapple with those things when I'm by myself. These are like sort of like, you know, things we can laugh about. But there's like all these different layers of that, right? Like you take stuff like family dynamics or histories or other things you can layer on more serious things too that can come up when, again, you encounter another person with different needs, different preferences, different thoughts or desires and their own sets of things that they come with as well too. Like the ways that we are asked to, to be with each other. I think one of the things that, that we talked about Eros and yeah. that I have been sitting with or writing about recently in my journaling that I think of love as a fierce practice, right? Like a practice of ferocity. I mean, it is a t- affection and all of those lovely things and, you know, but it also is been a question like how do we love people through difficulty or love them. One of my coworkers, his grandmother <laughs> has this saying, people who are hard to treasure. <laughs> and so how do we love people when they're hard to treasure, right? Or when they when they have depression or melancholy or addictions or whatever, all the stuff that like people have, <laughs> that we all have, that I have, and we still want to and we still love them and we want to relate to them. And so for me, that's where the ferocity of love comes in. And it's also like self-love too, right? There's that other piece. So I think that's why I describe love as like fierce for me, you know, because it's not just loving when, when, when it's joyful or when people mm-hmm. are easy to love, you know, or when they don't make demands on you in some ways, right? Like like your love of Nathan is a form of like fierce love, right? Mm-hmm. Like he may he needs things regardless of how tired you are, what kind of day you had, right? And yeah. so <laughs> how do you show up for him in those moments? You know, and sometimes it's imperfectly, right? Like it's not that's the thing. It's not like we talked about before, we're adequate. We're both adequate and inadequate mm-hmm. at all of those things and, and holding it. And I think that's the grace of it. But for me, I think, yeah, I think so. I just wanted to bring that in too, right? This notion of love that that I think you can't do any of these or have any of these spiritual practices without love, Mm. Or sometimes Eros, right? Like I talk about Eros a lot, even in my work as well. Like that, that the group that I was talking about in that earlier in the show, the facilitation team is three of us and there's a lot of Eros between us. And, and we talk about that being really important for our work. It's not just for personal relationships. It's also, I can't, it's hard to do beautiful sustainable, generative work with people without arrows, you know, and mm. which is a form of love, right? Or or love, 
Mm. So, and even I think too, like the extend extended the leadership, and I've said this to people too, and this is community part is a spiritual practice as well. Being in community is not easy, and I have a lot of snags around community too because I grew up in a community that was not a safe container for me mm. and like all the parts of me. And so I kind of like have this weird dance or relationship with being in community. Like I am in community and I love being in community in some ways. And there are ways where I find it very challenging as well. And so for me, again, this fierce love or this arrows comes in is not necessarily predicated on always liking being in community or liking the way that people show up all the time and you still love them anyway, mm-hmm. right? Like you still love them anyway, even when they are hard to treasure. And so I think that also is a spiritual practice mm-hmm. that we have to come back to. Like sometimes you don't particularly like people, but that has nothing to do with loving them and and being committed to being in relationship, basically. That's what it is. It's commitment to to being to relating. Mm. Well, I I might not, and you might, and and we might not know what exactly needs to be created for to to kind of have the world that we want to have, right? We don't even know exactly what it is that the world that we want to have. And one thing that feels really aligned for me, and it's it's a trite and it's a bumper sticker at times, but it feels like fierce love is the path forward. And and maybe to give more meat on the bones and, and specificity to this, at the time of recording right now, it's November 3rd in 2023. And I mean, there, there's always just so many atrocities and, and terrible things happening in the world. And, and there's the war in Israel and Palestine right now and making space for the, the non-duality of love is not an allowance of the, the terrible things that are happening, right? That, that to me is not what love is. Love is being able to see that these people who are doing terrible, terrible things are just in an immense amount of pain. And that if we, continue to combat pain with pain, with pain, with pain. To me, it feels evident that over time, it might feel like in the interim, what what's best, but long term, there's just going to be perpetuated more and more conflict. And the truly heroic act, which is so hard, and that I have a really hard time with, but that I aspire to, like if I talk about calling on my inner counsel, I'm calling on my Martin Luther King and my my Gandhi and my Nelson Mandela, that it's to meet these really challenging times with that fierce love that you're talking about. That there's just humans in immense pain that are that are doing these terrible things. That in a world of love and and seeing the person, not the the persona in them that's acting these terrible things out, but at the core, the the per, who that person really is. That that feels like a really important part of the world that is being created and, and all of our collective being and becoming. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I think 
I think, too, thank you for bringing that in. And, and this, like you said, this situation is just one of many impossible, I call them impossible situations, right, mm-hmm. that we get into because it's one of those things that you don't know what the way forward is. And there actually is no good way forward is the mm-hmm. truth of the matter, you know, yes, like, yes. Um, and, or, I mean, there is, and you can't see it and there isn't because it's just like so much complexity and, and pain and, and challenge in this situation. And so I think, you know, I was thinking about that earlier and I think part of it, that like one of the ways of working with it, which is a practice of love too, and not just that, but like all of the things in life down to the challenges in our intimate relationships is to to just be like allow ourselves to be brokenhearted mm-hmm. too. It's like that allowing that I talked about. Like and I think that's the first part of not being calcified around love or this even this watery quality in some ways of just yeah, a lot like just allowing the like allowing the heartbreak and allowing what is there too. Like I've sort of and I don't know, I haven't been talking about this as much. I talk about it a little bit in my work, but I've kind of started moving away from a, like a fixing model or mindset around things. And this is, you know, this is, I'm still figuring out what that looks like. Cause I do think like you were saying, I don't, I don't, it's not a space of inaction, right? It's not, there are things to, to do. Mm -hmm. Um, There's timely action. And, and like I was saying before, protection is not even, I'm not saying protection is bad either. There are times when you step in and, and, you need to protect or you need to do whatever it is. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I think you can't really know, especially in these situations where impossible situations, what the best timely action in that moment is without coming from this deep space of allowing what is there to be what it is. Mm-hmm. And that's so hard because like, you know, things are fucked up. You just like they are. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that it's like they are, right? They just are. Like that's the way to say it. And so I get like why it feels like we can't allow it, but mm-hmm. but it is. That's the thing. Like it is so. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. so like there is this way of just like allowing the world and people to be exactly as they are, you know, from that space and like feeling in and feeling the heartbreak and the the rage, the anger, the like the the terror, the all of the things that we encounter in our human experience, there's something about uh, allowing that to be. And then from that space together, sort of figuring out what the next best state is you know or mm-hmm. step is and i know that that's not might not be very coherent but it is but i think that's the first way into like basic sanity i think and i'm thinking about that in the in the the shambhala tradition way that they talk about that you know 
Um, not in like the psychological sense of sanity, but just like some kind of like being able to work with what is. Mm-hmm. That's because it is. I mean, things are what they are, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of complexity around around um, all of the different levels of suffering and um, pain and violence. Yeah. Hmm. Well, given all of this, like really making space for the the totality of what it is to be alive in these times, it's I find that it a lot of us collectively are really struggling when the world is fucked in some ways, like you were saying. There's joy can feel like a really radical act. And I wanted to talk to you about joy as a spiritual practice. That mm-hmm. I think joy is actually, you can have ferocious and fierce joy too. Yep. And I'm just wondering how, what that looks like for you in your life right now. Joy is a spiritual practice. I remember one, one of the things that stood out to me from our intro call was that you talked about just going to a movie, sitting down for a movie in a movie theater, having buttery popcorn. And I was like, yes, like that. That's part of how we heal too. That's that's a yeah. huge part of it. Yeah. Yeah, that um yeah, I think it is radical because now I'm borrowing from uh, Trisha Hersey who talks about rest as a form of resistance and she says and that her work is brilliant and she says that nobody will give you permission to rest so we have to rest, take it, you know. Um, yeah. And she ties it to like capitalism and all of these things, you know, this consumptive capitalism rather. And and so I think, again, nobody will give you permission for joy. And I think that I do think joy is maybe comes more naturally to some of us than others. Right. Like I want to acknowledge that, too. Like there's a lot of people have some innate and and also external barriers to joy. And that said, I think that's what makes it such a radical choice, right? Because within that, it's saying, one, that I do deserve joy or am worthy of joy. Because I think a lot of people don't even feel that. You know, I don't think we talk enough about worthiness in mm. some ways. Because I think that's one, or shame, that's why I love Brene Brown's work, because I think a lot of us really Mm. struggle with that. And it's not considered attractive or it's not one of those things that you can talk about with people, right? Because it's sort of shameful to say that I don't love myself or I don't think that I'm worth anything or that I'm of value to be taken care of, right? And a lot of people have those they just, we, a lot of us struggle with that, right? So I just want to acknowledge that. And so, yeah, I think joy is radical. And the thing that I've learned too is, well, it's a thing that I've learned last year, because I think I had mentioned that I was in a health crisis that sent me into what I talk about as an extended death meditation. Like I really did not know if I was going to live or die mm. for an extended period And so it was like a really radical act for me to say, yes, all of this stuff is going on with my body. I don't know, um, you know, how long I have and I'm fine now, but 
but that is something that I've, you know, that experience is with me and is really informed who I am now too. Um, and I'm still going to have joy, right? Like I still am going to, and I can have specific practices that cultivate joy, right? I think sometimes we wait for joy to come. And again, if joy is not something that natural is natural to you, or that where if you have certain circumstances, right, like a, a potentially fatal illness or something that make joy hard, I think you do have to be serious about it. And like mm-hmm. making it like a spiritual practice. And so I came up with, I thought about it. I was like, what will what will bring me joy in this moment? Where are spaces of joy? And like I bought a hula hoop. I bought actually like three different hula hoops and took up hula hooping as a practice. And I love dancing. So I was like, okay, I'm going to make time and space to listen to music and dance. The movie practice was another one of my joy practices too, because I love going to movies and it was very, all of these are very sensual experiences too, like the movie theater. Like I think I talked about the darkness of the theater and just the screen and being immersed in a story and and my popcorn. And then I would also get, they sell warm chocolate chip cookies at the theater that I go to. So I would get those too. I was like, calories be damned. I'm getting (laughs) this popcorn and these chocolate chip cookies. (laughs) And I'm going to sit here and I did it every, I still do it. And so those are just examples. They would be different for different people because then people, I asked somebody this, one of my neighbors, this at a party, the other weekend. And she was like, that's a good question. I don't know what brings me joy. So even just like asking the question mm. and like thinking about it can be a provocation for people. And it is a practice because it, again, it, it forces you to encounter the ways that you don't seek or accept joy right, which gets it like worthiness or other things that that happen. And also some people find, and I've had this happen for me when I'm in so much joy, like I had an experience a week ago where I was in so much joy and something good had happened. And I immediately went to this like, well, something bad is going to happen then. Because mm-hmm. there's no way that I can have this much goodness or this much joy. And then I was like, where the hell did that thought come from? You know, it was like so shocking to me that I was actually afraid of my joy in a minute because it just seemed like it was bumping up against some way that I think about life and myself as being hard and difficult. You know, all the so it forces you to encounter all of these little assumptions and mindsets that you have. So I really invite people to really think about Joy, and I guess the last thing I'll say about it is the other thing, I think it also connected me to my lineage again, Mm. because, and here I'm thinking about the like Black tradition, the the African-American tradition of joy and humor in the face of like unspeakable, you know, pain and, and atrocities. Like that's such a big part of Black culture, Right. Like laughing 
and humor at things that are really not funny. Like this got not funny, this gallows humor that black people have <laughs> around like, you know, like really like dark, ridiculous stuff or whatever. And like still laughing and dancing and thinking about like how you dress and what you look like in the face of things that, you know, seem really crazy and so I was like, oh, I do. I also have a lineage that invites me into that, too. Mm. So, like, what, like, how can we draw on these things again? So that's sort of my experience of joy as a radical practice or as a spiritual practice. Hmm. There's so much juice in there. There's this conversation about worthiness. There's uh, the, the waiting for the other shoe to drop or... As as Gay Gay Hendricks would call it, the upper limits problem, right? The the uh, capacity that we allow ourselves to feel good before some some worry thought comes in or some other belief comes in, yeah. And it's it's reminding me. I'm actually in this new practice that you're reminding me. I, I want to get back to that I, I haven't done in the last few days, but I came across it a couple of weeks ago. Are you familiar with laughter meditations or laughter yoga? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds so silly and and it is silly actually <laughs> it is yeah right i'm 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 trying to write it off as not silly it's it's amazing how silly it is right like it's so great and a couple of weeks ago i was sitting with my mom my son and my wife and i put it i put the youtube video of a laughter meditation on tv and they were like, what the fuck is wrong with you? This is so childish and weird. And I was just cracking up because laughter invites, it begets more laughter. Like I, after 10 minutes, I'm, I'm belly, you know, I can't even breathe. I'm belly laughing so hard. Oh my God. And it's a beautiful practice because laughter, like what's better than laughter? Laughter just feels good. But, but something else that, that seems to happen is that it's like a release for our body. It's like almost like going into a sauna or a great exercise session that if, if our body goes through that, it allows, like if we haven't connected to the heartbreak in us that, that needed to be felt laughter, actually what I found can be a really interesting portal into that. And that all these things are connected that if we shut off our joy, we shut off, our anger, we shut off our sadness, all of them block each other in some way. And so this, this thing that we call being human, it's like, can we allow all of this to yeah. be here? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I think I love that. Yeah. I've done laughter, laughter yoga in work settings and it is super, it's like, people are just like, what is this thing? But then Eventually, everybody is laughing so hard because you're laughing at other people laughing <laughs> and then laughing at how silly the whole practice is. And then the next, you know, so it's true. It's, it is, it's really fun, kind of like ridiculous laughter. And also like it's play, like adults yeah. don't play enough mm-hmm. either. Like I, so I think, yeah, like what, like play for adults has really gotten relegated to like certain things like sports or sex or, you know, or like these very specific things. But like, yeah, I, again, like for the listeners, I invite you to think about like, when was the last time you just sort of like 
played, whatever that it is, like what's a form of play for you or laughter or my husband makes me laugh. He's so funny. He's like one of the funniest people. So we laugh all the time. Um, <laughs> and like this sort of like belly, mm-hmm. you know, like tears, like can't breathe level of laughter. So that's nice too. Um and it's so important, I think, for us. But I was about to say, like, this whole thing that you sparked with me with, like, being fully human, it is really, like, this being part that I've been playing or thinking about quite a bit. When I think about animals or other creatures or trees or even children, young children, but especially animals and, and trees and nature, like they literally aren't doing anything except for being themselves. (laughs) You know, like whatever it is that their, their creaturely self does is what they do. Like the birds are like, you know, I don't know what they do all day. What do they do it all day? They're like picking up stuff, (laughs) like digging in, you know, and whatever that is, is what they're meant to be doing. Right. Like, it's just like, they don't, and we love them and we think that they're inherently worthy. Um, again, yeah, kids, that's why I think about kids sometimes too, right? Like they're ridiculous and beautiful and silly, selfish, right? Like they only think about their own needs. My one friend was saying her toddler niece barely listens half the time, <laughs> like she's two. You know, and they and she was like, and we love her. You know, like, we just love her. Like, she throws temper tantrums, but she's also, like, cuddly and sweet. And the same with the... And so I was like, yeah, like, when did we lose this notion that, like, just being ourselves, whatever that is for you, is not enough, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the fact that you have to do something else. And, and there's so many of us with such different ways of being that, you know, like, it's good. We'll figure it out, right? Like, you have the person who's, you know, the analytical one who's going to, like, I have a friend who, like, prepares for everything in advance or whatever, and I'm like, okay, I want you. She was totally prepared for the pandemic because she had been, like, doing all of that stuff. Like, she's, like, that person. And then you have the person who's, like, silly and funny and kind of ridiculous or whatever, you know, and then you have the artists who the artists, godly, like how would we survive without the artists who bring so much joy and beauty into the world? You know, so again, like this notion that we have to be other than whatever it is that you show up as on the earth, like your thing is is crazy actually. So I've really been sitting with this notion talk about inadequate because it got this whole being inadequate thing brought me into this whole um free around beingness and and just like yeah, I don't have to do anything. It's that mm-hmm. unconditional confidence again like I'm here and so I must belong here because I'm here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as whatever this thing is that I've like shown up <laughs> as, you know, with all of my ridiculousness too, and you know, and beauty and and all of it, right? Like it all. And the fact is, is that our people who love us, love us as. I mean, we might drive them crazy sometimes, but they love us 
for all the things that we are, actually. Mm -hmm. Like that particular incarnation that's like your thing. And so um, I don't know, like, I guess it just really is an invitation to just that we don't have to be anything other than what we are. Right. Like we don't have to be anything other than what we are. Sad, mad, glad, happy, <laughs> laughing, joyful, angry. You know, all of those things. Super serious, playful, silly. Right. It's like, <laughs> it's okay. It's fine. You know, like, it's just like, yeah, like just be like the birds or the deer doing whatever, again, whatever the hell they do all day. I don't know what they do all day. <laughs> How do you how do you know, Shaquille, that birds don't have limiting self beliefs and internalized ways of yeah? I have to be this way for my parents, so I'm not gonna fly high. No, this is a. I don't know actually. I hey, I know a lot of birds who are really struggling with their identity, and tre- <laughs> and trees too, but. No, this is a beautiful note to, to, I think, move towards the back end of the conversation here. It's, I mean, if there's any wish that I could have for myself, you, or, or anyone who's listening, just a- allowing ourselves to be all of who we are, that's, that is such a beautiful wish. So is, is there anything else that we haven't spoken about so far today that feels important to bring into the conversation? No, I guess the only thing I would just say is I know that sounds Pollyannish, what I just said, but that is spirituality. That's spiritual practice, yeah. right? Just allowing ourselves to be fully who we are and allowing other people to be fully who they are, you know? And then what is it that we're creating together in those spaces of us being exactly who we are at any given moment? And I think that is the work of a lifetime and it requires yeah. a lot of spiritual practice. It requires support just because of the way that life is, you know, the way that we've structured societies and life and everything. And I think that actually is the point. Like that's really, really the point. Everything else is kind of like gravy. So whatever, whatever therapy or practice or joy or pray, play or relational practice that you have to be in to to do that that's i think that's as individual as people there are on the planet and i think that's what we're up to really mm-hmm. well i'll say it doesn't sound pollyanna-ish to me and and the reason that it doesn't is because we it's not just a little tagline like i i, I said bumper sticker before right it, it's not just love conquers all on a bumper sticker We've had an hour and 40 minutes of spacious dialogue about all this. And we've addressed a lot of the nuance that it's, that is a beautiful aspiration. And there's so much that goes into it. There's so much that goes into it. So I think you've done a beautiful job of addressing it. I just have a a couple more questions for you. And uh, I'll invite in the organization that you wanted to raise awareness for. If you want to just say a word or two about Faith Matters Network, I... Every episode, I always, you know, in the introduction, I'll, I'll make a, a mention of Faith Matters Network as well. I always donate to and raise awareness for an organization of my guest choice. And I, you lit up a little bit when you started to talk about Faith Matters Network. So what is this organization? Yeah, they're a beautiful 
group. It's a womanist organization run by Reverend Jen Bailey. And I think the simple part to say people should go look them up, but they do um, movement chaplaincy work, which I hadn't even known that that was a thing, but it's how do we resource the people um, who are doing um, movement work towards a, a, a more just and equitable and flourishing future for everybody, right? And how are they connected to their sources of, of sustenance and um, spiritual practice? So I just find the work that they do, especially in today's times, really um, critical. Mm. So two more questions for you. And, and thank you for bringing that into my awareness. Uh, like I said, I'll be donating and inviting listeners to do the same. Places to connect with you. Is it just your your work at Fetzer? Is there anywhere else that you'd point people to connect with you? No, I think, yeah, that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. Even though I know we weren't doing this as like part of my, my um, work at Fetzer, but that probably is the easiest way to get in touch with me yeah. if you have questions, you know, or just want to be in inquiry, which I love um, mm-hmm. being in inquiry with folks. Beautiful. Well, the last question that I ask in every interview, Shaquilla, is what does it mean to you to live a meaningful life? Oof. I think living life as inquiry is really important for me and a big part. We didn't talk about that, but a big part of we did implicitly, but not explicitly like living life as inquiry is the, I guess the way that I live my life. So that's a big um, meaningful part, but I think what it means to be a, to live a meaningful life is being a, a lover and a beloved. Mm. I love that. A lover and a beloved. Mm-hmm. Well, Shaquilla, thank you for bringing all of you into today's conversation. I I feel really nourished and, and sustained by conversations like this one. This was a, a really beautiful invitation into spirituality, joy, relationship, being in our mess, being in the not knowing of, of where we're going as, as a species, as a world. And uh, I, I got a lot out of this conversation. So I just really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. And to everyone who is tuned in, thank you so much for listening. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe. And to everyone who's listening audio, have a good rest of your day or evening. Take good care and sending you lots of fierce love. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.
Thank you.